Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. In today's episode, we're delighted to share with you some audio from 2010's Pastoral Refreshment Conference. In this audio, Dick Dowsett brings us one of his talks on Philippians and Joy in the Lord, entitled Joy in Moving with God. Somebody told me that I was a bit too fidgety as I spoke uh, last night. Um, Partly nerves. Partly that when I was a small child, I wanted to be a ballet dancer, but I turned out <laughs> turned out the wrong shape. John Riz was telling me that he was finding his daughters earlier and said, "Do you remember Dick, who stayed with us before?" And uh, apparently, the wee lass said, "And, and did he teach you any ballet steps?" <laughs> I'm sorry, if you find it difficult, you can do like somebody once at an InterServe conference who said, um, uh, when I shut my eyes, it's not because I'm going to sleep, it's just that I like to concentrate on what you're saying. (laughs) So I'm sorry about that. Um, For those of you who are wondering and worrying about it, although it was chaotic, I did have seven pages of notes last night. Um, But I have good good glasses, an optician who understands the sort of glasses that a preacher needs. And I've got six pages today, so it won't be as long, hopefully. Turn please to Philippians chapter 2 and if you are wise you will check what I say against the scriptures. That is indeed your responsibility. We don't have any infallible preachers. We only have an infallible word and very fallible preachers. That's why you must wait. It was one of the greatest training experiences for me when I was a young missionary in the Philippines expounding scripture and people said to me, Dick, is that biblical or British? (laughs) Because if it's British, we don't want it. Which was very good. It helped deliver me from missionary imperialism. We all need to be delivered from that. And the part that I have been set is from verse 12 through to 18 or thereabouts, but I may wander a little bit. And the subject today is on joy in moving with God. One time when I was preaching in Beijing, I was taken for lunch at a club where they had a a black gospel singer. It was a secular club, and unfortunately the black gospel singer had been in the congregation while I had been preaching. And she suddenly called out from the floor where she was performing all these numbers, Hey, we've got a preacher here today. Preacher, you come down here and pray for all these people. I thought, good grief, this is downright illegal for a foreigner to do this in a club in Beijing. It was very embarrassing. But there was something I learned from this fascinating, exuberant woman. She said this, she said, I want to find out what God is doing and go with it. 
And it seems to me there's something of that in the Apostle Paul in these verses that we're going to study together. Paul was living under the threat of liquidation. He says in verse 17, I am being poured out. Peterson in the message paraphrase says, even if I'm executed here and now. Most of us mercifully don't have to live under quite that sort of threat. I have a friend in a village just outside of Beijing who does. He was told some years ago by the police that they were going to liquidate him. I remember going there sometime after that to meet with the church that meets in that factory, of which the pastor is the manager. If you collect, collect figurines of Doctor Who, they are made in that factory, the different Doctor Whos. And I met for the meeting, but they were frightened. On the blackboard there was a talk about child management. They said, if anyone comes in you don't recognize, you're giving a talk on child management. So I decided to preach from to Timothy because that was Paul's child management of a young pastor. <coughs> the pastor said to me, I'm sorry, I can't stay tonight, I'm not well. And my wife's not well. I knew they were just scared. And went into hiding. The next time I went a year later, they said, we're going to have a company meeting and you're going to give the pep talk for the workers. See, the police were still around. So I did another pep talk from the workers from another part of the scripture. Then most people sat on their Bibles after we'd read it. Pastor and his wife came, and afterwards one cried on one shoulder, the other cried on the other shoulder. They're still living under threat of liquidation. Then I went the third year when I was in Beijing, and they ran a morning training conference, leadership training conference for groups of them, one particularly lovely couple who were going to plant a factory and a house church in Tibet. Scary little couple, just very wee, fragile. And afterwards we had a banquet because they had dared to do it. They had emerged that bit more from living under the threat of liquidation. And we, we celebrated. And when the Chinese have a banquet, it's not three courses or something miserable like that. <laughs> I have them quite often, as you can see. <laughs> and as we drove back to his new apartment, the wife said to me, I still have nightmares every night. I am so afraid I'm going to lose him. That's what it means to live where you write the words, even if I am executed here and now. And yet he writes, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? He was also living with the disappointment of Christian selfishness. I drew your attention uh, yesterday to verses 20 and 21. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. 
is wonderful realism about how slow Christians are to learn, isn't it? And postmodernism is even worse, isn't it, in that respect? I and mean, it sometimes drives me crazy, you know, after a service, everyone nudges everybody else and says, did you enjoy that? Well, that's what matters, isn't it? That really is the most important thing, isn't it? Look out for your own interests. But the New Testament church had that sort of problem. Sorry, that's not my stomach. I don't know what it is. But. And there he can say, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. When Paul writes that he can rejoice, he's not a man with, without any problem in the world, is he? You know, sometimes you can really get peeved when people tell you this sort of thing and you think, if you really knew what life was about, you wouldn't be so silly. But Paul does really know what life is about. He is not a man with an easy life. He's not a man with a non-stop success ministry. But he is someone with an apparently unshakable joy. And I want today to look at, yes, five other things that I see in this passage that, that, that I want to, I want to learn from. The first is that Paul knew that God was actively working in him and in them that he was burdened about. In verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you. In chapter 1, he focused on what God did in the past. He began a good work in you, and what he will do, he will bring it to completion. It's then and then, but in chapter 2, it's what he's about now. The focus is on what he's doing now. And he believed that amongst everything else that was going on and all the voices that were clamoring for his attention, there was a push of God in his life and there was an active working push of God within the lives of the believers. God is at work in you. Not that this was the only pressure on people's lives. He says there was a pressure on people's lives, life was difficult, and so there was a tendency for Christians to complain, to have gripe sessions, as we used to put it in the Philippines. I mean, in Britain they have this strange idea that, you know, you, you, you share your gripes together because that makes it easier to cope, doesn't it? You say, well, a problem shared is a problem halved. It isn't. It's, du it's doubled. <laughs> you both go away shattered afterwards. <laughs> and he says there's a pressure. So he says there in verse 14, do everything without complaining. But, but, but there were pressures to complain, wasn't it? I remember once in Beijing, I was meeting with some Singaporean business people, and this woman who had been sent to Singapore by her company to market Mars bars and Snickers, they're just what China needs. She said, it's terrible. When we get together in our Bible study notes, Bible study groups, we compare notes. Who's had the worst experience of them this week? And sometimes maybe you do the same. Complaining. 
They're pressures to argue. British evangelicals are top of the league in this, aren't we? We argue about anything. We can make any secondary issue into something to go to war over. And we constantly win arguments and lose people. Go to battle, think we've won, but we've actually lost the war. Do things without complaining or arguing. There were those pressures, there's those pushes that we acknowledge in us to, to really have a complaining, miserable session. There's these pressures on us to really go to war with one another. There are these pressures on us because we live, says the Apostle, in a crooked and depraved generation. He used to say to these Singaporeans in Beijing, you don't have to pretend that everything's lovely in, in Beijing any more than I have to pretend that everything's lovely in Glasgow. There's a lot by common grace that is. There's a lot that's very crooked and depraved, and there are pressures from living in a crooked and depraved generation. There's plenty of crookedness and depravity in the church, let's face it. But, says Paul, although he felt these pressures on himself, and though he recognized them in his congregation, he believed in a God who is pushing in the lives and hearts of his people. It's important just to understand that, isn't it? Paul didn't despair because he knew that God was pushing in people in a different direction from the pressures of society. I was listening to a preacher on Sunday uh, who was... At one particular point, he was talking from Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 about going on to maturity, and he took the old translation going on to perfection and talked about the way that the Lord calls us to be perfect and then talked about the perfection of the Lord's work in creation, in the law of God, in, in the word of God, and in the Savior. And he spoke of Jesus uh, when he died on the cross, and of course he cried out, Tetelestai, it's finished, and, and I always like to explain that in terms of the stamp on a debt that says paid for. But, but he was thinking of it in terms of the way that an artist puts the finishing touch on something that is totally magnificent. And this is, done it. And was describing the cross in terms of that absolute exquisite workmanship of God. Yes, this, this amazing payment, but this extraordinary, Extraordinary work of salvation art. Uh, uh, and it, it kind of gripped me. And then, then I thought, he, he went on and he said, when the Lord saves you, he does it perfectly. But it's the perfection where you may look at the baby and say, isn't she perfect? But if she's the same two years later, she's not. And we look at our congregations and, and sometimes we look at them as, oh, goodness me, why did I have to get saddled with this lot? And then Paul says, we are his workmanship. Do we really believe that God does a crummy job? We are his workmanship. But it is work in progress. It is a work in progress that he is describing here. God works in you. 
to will and to act according to his good purposes. We need to teach and encourage one another to sense the new urges and the new possibilities that God has put there, what he is working into us. And it seems to me that what he is calling us to in these verses is an awesome tuning into God. Work it out, he says, with fear and trembling. Not bringing God down to your level in that sort of cheap, matey sort of way. But that awesome sense that the mighty one is actually doing things in your life and in mine. He hasn't gone absent without leave. He is totally committed day after day to work, to push in you and me. Now, we don't all have to become, uh, oh, God said to me sort of types. <laughs> as we grow to discern this, but some of us are. My, my, my son is a sort of God-says-to-me sort of type. Uh, before he moved to uh, Liverpool, while he was uh, working with a different sort of church from mine in, in, South, in Sheffield, he said one day he was walking along the street, and, and the Lord said to him, go in that shop and buy an arrow. I thought, oh, my goodness me. What have we got here? Anyway, goes into this junk shop in the rough end of Sheffield and there's an arrow stuck up on the top of the shelf. So he says, I want to buy an arrow. God told me to buy an arrow. <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes your children cause you a bit of panic, don't they? <laughs> so the guy says to him, are you an archer? And he says, no, but I wouldn't mind learning. And the guy says, well, I'll teach you. And the guy wanted to know about Jesus. I mean, <laughs> I mean, God does do wacky things sometimes, doesn't he? I mean, one time I was in Bangkok, and, and, and I was moving on to, I think it was to Brunei, and, and they realized I got 12 messages to prepare, so they, so they assigned me a free, free morning. <laughs> I mean, and you know, I, I, I don't talk like my son does quite as often as he does anyway about God told me to do this or that, you know, but I was, I was, I, I got a work crisis. Uh, and it was one of those, for me, relatively rare occasions where, where, where I virtually heard a voice saying, you shouldn't be here, you should be over at the guest house. And I thought, that's definitely not God. <laughs> I've got a work crisis. It wouldn't shut up, so I piled my books up and I went over to the guest house. First of all, I met a bloke who just arrived as a new missionary there and nobody knew anything about him, but apparently he'd been called in Canada through my ministry, so he was quite pleased to see me. So I got him sort of calmed down with the Lord. And I turned around and there was this guy standing there and I said, oh, who are you? And he said, told me his name and he said, I work with Muslims in the south of Thailand. I said, is it as horrible there as they say? And the guy turned a whiter shade of pale and started to cry. He was going home. Been working amongst Muslims there and people have put it around that he'd gone there to put a curse on people. 
After a while, some of the tiny handful of believers thought that might be right. Can you imagine? I said, can you pray? He says, no, I can't. So I said, would you like me to pray for you? And he started to pray and he started to cry. And God began a healing process there that the elders in his church back home took up on. And today leads a team of people discipling Muslims in South Thailand. Years on. Now, God doesn't always do that, but we don't have to assign the Holy Spirit to the place where he, he inspired the scripture and then went walk about. He's given us the scriptures so that we can check out whether that push is really God or us, us being daft or even the enemy. But the Lord also works through his word, doesn't he, as he changes our mindsets and makes us long for things that we didn't long for. He has all sorts of ways of working. But he is in the work of giving us new urges and new abilities that weren't there before. He's doing it in your church with the believers too. Work in progress, though they profoundly are, like me and you. The second thing I want you to see is that he knew that God did ongoing salvation work in his people. We tend sometimes to think, well, either you're saved or you're not, but actually in the scripture it's not, you are, you are receiving the salvation of your soul, says Peter, in 1 Peter 1 and verse 9. In other words, salvation is not just what was settled when you became a Christian, or what you're going to get when you are like Jesus face to face in glory. It's what he's working in on you now, isn't it? And so he says, I want you to work out your salvation. It's there, but work it out with fear and trembling because God is pushing in you to give you new desires and new abilities to get with what it means to be more safe than we are at the moment. I think for me, seeing this sort of process of entering increasingly into salvation was something that I saw much more in, in, in raising our children than I saw in my own life, or rather it helped me to see how it worked in my own life. When, when, when we were pregnant with our first child, um, I remember reading that John the baptizer was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, and I said to the Lord, Lord, was that a one-off, or could you do it for my kids as well? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you think about that, but anyway, that's what I said to him. And I found it very interesting that as the kids grew up, all of them in different ways had wonderful answers to prayer that embarrassed me by the time they were two. Uh, but they learned salvation in a different route from me. I mean, David at two learned to trust the Lord for deliverance from the demonic because the neighbors taught him about the demons in the trees. I shall never forget his extraordinary exegesis of Colossians 2. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. When I asked him, what did Jesus do on the cross to the demon's daddy? He smacked them. <laughs> but to me it was extraordinary, because, because as, a, as a guy that must have been about 30 then, I was less sure about deliverance from the demonic than my two-year-old was. 
we enter into different areas of salvation in different ways, don't we? Salvation from oppressors. You know, and, and when I see oppressive government action here or anywhere else in the world, you know, I'm not quite sure that prayer will work. And I see a three-year-old pray, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for that naughty President Armin. Please, please put him in prison. And please help the Christians not to be frightened and dancing around the room when Armin fled from Uganda. And you thought, my goodness, you know, he, he believes Isaiah when he talks about taking hold of the hand of Cyrus, whom, who doesn't know him. And he's entering more into the salvation life of a God who reaches his hand into these sort of dimensions. But we do need to learn about salvation, don't we? You really settled on fear of death? I mean, I know you minister it to others. Have you discovered that salvation from that temper, that bitterness, that failure again and again and again? Now, you see, Paul knows that those he disciples are messy. They are disappointing. They are far from what they ought to be. It's work in progress. But he believes in a God who saves as a lifestyle. Saves and saves and saves. Yes, we sang it earlier, how God saves. Because it was a modern hymn, we sang it over and over again. God saves. <laughs> Actually, Handel did it with the Alleluia Chorus. I mean, it's, it's very monotonous, isn't it? Wonderful. Now, this is very important, isn't it? I find it quite difficult to tune into the heart of God as somebody who keeps doing what people don't deserve when they're people that really get on my wick. Don't you? The heart of somebody who believes in a, an ongoing saviour. And you need to ask, and I need to ask, what does God want to do in my life that I don't remotely deserve? How will he work? And as we go from situation to situation and from crisis to crisis, we need to ask ourselves and work it out, what difference does it make that I happen to be a saved person? Not just a human being but a human being in whom God has invested salvation life. You believe in the Savior who goes on saving as a lifestyle? We'd be done for otherwise, wouldn't we? When did you last do something that could send you to hell? doesn't take very much sin to go to hell, does it? But it's an ongoing saviour. Work it out, he says. Work out your rescuing, your being rescued, your salvation with fear and trembling. It is awesome that this God is so committed. The third thing I want to focus on is that he actually believed that ordinary Christians could work it out. I like that, don't you? 
We have a problem in Britain. We are probably the most cynical society that I have ever worked in. We call it realism, but it's not actually realism. It's, it's, we, we are cynical. Sometimes our cynicism is either a, uh, gives us a new form of priestcraft, priestcraft. Of course, our people can't work it out. We've got to work it out for them. Or we are practical atheists and we say, well, it, it doesn't really work in practical life. But we need to learn to look at our ministry and we need to learn to look at our lives through this grid of a working God. The opposite of cynicism is not gullibility. Paul is very well earthed about the problem of New Testament Christians, but he believes the push of God can be discerned by and, by and in ordinary Christians. Of course, the safeguard, as I suggested earlier, is the word of God, but also the fellowship of the church. When he says work out your salvation, the problem for us with modern English is that we can't distinguish between your and thy. It's all right in Glasgow because we have a plural you, use. And he's saying here, use, work out your salvation, and still we think about what you do in our quiet times, don't we? But actually the commands are not plural in that way. It says, let us find God's way through. It is a command for the gang at Philippi to be a gang that works it out together. It's the same with 1 Corinthians 10.13, isn't it? No problem has grabbed yous, but such as is common to people. God is faithful and he will not allow yous to be problemized beyond your strengths. But with the problem, we'll provide a way of escape so that yous can push up under it. You can bear it. But it's corporate. It's, it's, it's body life. You know, I mean, even a patriarch like John Piper believes in the importance of small groups where you will minister to one another and get into this business of helping one another work out the difference in life it is to be a safe person with God pushing for good results in our lives. I long that our churches should become salvation discovery centers, don't you? where together we could work out and help one another work out how it's going to work. That's number three. He believed ordinary Christians could work it out. He believed, fourthly, that disciples were made for outreach, not for maintenance, but for growth. I love the way in verse 15 he says, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. A lovely picture, isn't it? Of the sort of people of God as a sort of showroom of demo models. Really well polished, you know, so that people go by and say, God, I wouldn't mind a car like that. <laughs> Isn't that what, what he's sort of longing for? Not just people who, who shine so that it looks good, but people who hold out the word of life 
to others. For when you just get nice, shiny people, the average Brit's response is it really restores your confidence in humanity, doesn't it? But it's a lovely, fresh-faced vision of a church, isn't it? Shining like stars in the, in the universe as you hold out the word of life. I like that. I think sometimes we need to be a bit optimistic about demonstration model Christians. When I was a student, there was a, a pagan organist, organ scholar, in my college. One day he described to me uh, the Christian Union group, who were an odd lot. He described them in terms of fruit of the Spirit. And he said, do you know why it is? He said, it's said because they have such an excellent organization. Really? I says, that's funny. That sort of character is what the Bible says happens when the Holy Spirit comes into people. But I thought, how on earth did he see that in our lot? Demo models. Some years ago, a shy Australian friend of mine, if that's not a contradiction in terms, <laughs> asked me to um, meet a group of mature students in Beijing for an English discussion. They were all children of Politburo members. And he said, this is Dick, he's a friend of China, so don't waste your time on chopstick questions. So within about two minutes, they said, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. They said, oh, good, we've lots of questions for you. And away we went. And after a while, somebody says, anybody here ever met a Christian? And one girl said, I have. And the other said, what is she like? And you sort of held your breath as one does when you get a question like that. <laughs> She said, well, she's very loving and she's joyful and uh, she has a sort of peace about her and she's, she's kind and she's gentle and she's patient and she's very disciplined. She <laughs> 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 said, when I was sick recently, she stayed with me till two o'clock in the morning. She's the kindest person I know. I, I, I really do want to be like her. I thought, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I mean... Not only has she got a good one, but she got a total Galatians 5 one. <laughs> I mean, and a bit later on this, uh, I, I had to go on to an African meeting, and it, it's such fun in Beijing. <laughs> so, but my, my shy Aussie stayed, and this girl said, oh, she said, I do want to become a Christian. She said, but I understand I can't until next year when the bishop comes. <laughs> So the Australian being a Baptist put her right on that one. <laughs> she became a Christian that night, 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 but I mean it really was nothing to do with the, the, the Baptist. He was just the midwife. But he's a demo model. Shining light stars. Now, this is, this is freaky, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's a lovely couple in our church... Um, my daughter's bridesmaids started being friendly with, she's a doctor like my daughter, and, and she, she got friendly with this anaesthetist, and he came from a really nice British home, but he wasn't saved. 
And so Michael started coming to our church, and, and he came from a really nice home. I mean, he wasn't, you know, beaten up as a child or anything like that. And he comes into a church, and he says, I've never seen people love each other like this. I thought, for goodness sake, there's somebody who hasn't talked to me for 18 months since I put her nose out of joint. <laughs> and he's saying, I've never seen people love one another like this, you know. I mean, he's absolutely gobsmacked by it. I mean, he didn't know anything. I mean, one time we had a youth leader taking a service, and he said, I want you to tell the person next to you what you know about Timothy. And Michael says to me, who's Timothy? <laughs> I mean, I mean, but I mean, isn't that extraordinary? But I, I, I think we need to recognise this. You know, all right, we're a grotty church-like, but I mean, uh, and we, we we swallow all this stuff as the Archbishop of Canterbury has said. Some people in the government, like Harriet Harman, seem to think the church is a problem. But actually, about 90% of the social care that's not paid for by the government is done by Christians at their own expense. We're not a problem, we're part of the glue. But I know we've got sins and problems in our churches. I know that we're not Rolls-Royce versions of a church, but if you've only got a broken-down bike, then an even an old Ford car is worth having. Shine it up a bit. I love this image of the demonstration models. We need to remind each other that what we've got to offer is the word of life. Yes? A friend of mine, uh, my German friend, who was told to ask the Lord for the gift of tongues, so he asked for Arabic and Farsi. Who, uh, <laughs> <laughs> planted an Iranian church in Glasgow was about... 200 Muslim-born believers come to his clinic and say, Doctor, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. What do you reckon? And he used to say, well, they killed Jesus. It might be difficult for you, but I reckon it's a good idea. And they've got so many, so many pastoral problems, you know, some of them going back to immigration and saying, when I told you about it, I lied, but now I've become a Christian. I want to tell you the truth. I mean... <laughs> Lots of problems. Somebody said, when you've been raised in Iranian Islam, you, you are a congenital liar. That was not said by me. That was said by an Iranian converted Muslim. That's a pain in the church. But they've come alive. They've come alive. And they are, relatively speaking, a demo model. And they have got the word of life. And they do pass it on. So do your lot sometimes, don't they? So Paul is lovely like that, I think. At least I think he is. But fifthly and lastly, he regarded the sacrifices of ministry as worth it. That helped him get through, didn't it? I like that verse 17. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. He passed on this principle of sacrifice to the Philippians, didn't he? In chapter 4 and verse 18, he talks about their gent fragrant offering as an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. When I was a student, and IVP had rather few publications, 
there was a little book that we were all expected to read by a guy called Howard Guinness, and it was called Sacrifice. Those days they used to reprint it often, but it's vanished from the bookshelves now for donkey's years. People don't talk about sacrifice. They don't talk about sacrifice in the church anymore, do we? Don't talk about self-sacrifice. You talk about fulfillment. There's a different vocabulary altogether, isn't it? The only time you hear about sacrifice is when they interview the family of somebody who's been killed in Afghanistan. And when you talk to, when you listen to service wives, it sort of makes your hair stand on end, doesn't it? Because, because they have a concept of sacrifice that the whole of the rest of the British public finds totally alien. You know, they, they, they could almost be Martians the way they talk about sacrifice. Where they talk about obeying the commanding officer because it's worth it. And of course they're suffering and of course it's hurting like crazy. But, but, but somehow they instill into that community a sense that if there's a war on, then you're going to be called to sacrifice. And, and we have lost it amongst the people of God. And so we find that people will regularly say to you in, 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 in what you're doing or in what you're trying to do or even, you know, I mean, for those of you who are doing work and doing a bit of ministry or whatever it is, they will say to you, do you enjoy it? I mean, somebody said to me, said to a colleague of mine who'd just come back from trying to plant a church in Japan and if you think it's hard here, you go to Japan and you will cry and cry and cry. the country where 0.1% of the whole population would know the gospel. And somebody says to him, do you enjoy it? A student said to me on one occasion, I have a bit of a thing about Muslims, so I thought I'd go on holiday in Algeria to see if I enjoy it. And I said to her and to the rest of that CU, if the Muslims of this world have got to wait until we find it fun to evangelize them, they've had it. They've had it. I mean, people don't go out to Afghanistan and say to our boys there, do you enjoy it? Strike. It just doesn't make sense. We follow a crucified saviour. And that way of sacrifice that, that we read out together is stunning who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a doulos, a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And then you get sense this sort of respectable Jewish intake of breath, even death on a cross, even scum execution. That's our saviour. Why? Paul says, I expect us to be going that way with Jesus. And if you expect it, it's easier, isn't it? It's easier to rejoice even though there's pain. If you think instead that God owes you fun and fulfillment, satisfaction and success, and pain-free prosperity, then you will be very miserable. But if you know this is the beautiful Jesus way, 
It's not easy, but it is different. This is not grim stoicism that we're called to, sisters and brothers. This is the way of the cross as the road to glory. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Isaiah says, at the name of Yahweh, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're in a war, of course we get hurt. Of course it's costly. Of course there is sometimes massive sacrifice. But friends, this is a winnable war. 9 to 11 are certain verses. Somebody said to me in a coffee bar in Japan, you missionaries are wasting your time. We Japanese don't want to become Christians. And in the light of verses 9 to 11, I could say, no, you don't yet. Not yet. But you will. Every tongue will confess. This is the winnable war. And therefore Paul can say, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Not easy. But a joy in the pain. Let's pray. Living God, how amazing you are as somebody who works on people. We thank you for the little surprises we get sometimes in ministry when we see you, your fingerprints on different members of the congregation. Obviously doing things. Lord, help us to, to cope with the in-process situation we're in as you build your masterpiece. We thank you that it's not just that you're working if we've got it all taped, but you're you're working as a saving God. And we want to tell you together that we want to enter more fully into what it means to be saved people. We want to be those who discover day by day in the challenges of life, in the challenges that other people throw at us, in the challenges because of our own fallen perversity. We want to discover more of what it means to be your saved women and your saved men. And we want to enter more into that extraordinary generosity of yours. Lord, make our communities places that are able to help one another to work this out. And even here at this conference, we pray that we may so minister to one another that each of us works out more of what it is to be your saved people. Lord, it's extraordinary that you allow your messed up church to be your advert in this world. 
And yet when we see something as the awful brokenness of a world without Christ, we are, we are grateful for the in-process work that you have done in our churches. And we thank you that there are things that unbelievers can see. And we pray that it may be more so and that we will not be ashamed or embarrassed as we feel so often in our culture to hold out the word of life because that's what it is. And Lord, you have called us to sacrifice. For some of us here, that feels very heavy at the moment. And we just pray that you will help us to have that sense of familiness with Jesus in going that way. And that you will give us, not in a glib triumphalist way, but in a deep assurance way, that belief that you are the winner. And that the glory that is revealed will make it worthwhile. So in these ways we ask you to restore to us the joy of our salvation. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find us on any major social media platform at Living Leaders or visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll also find more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. God bless.